just funny how contenders, quote unquote, contenders are held to a different standard. What? No one would do that, Josh. We all judge these teams by the same measuring stick. No, you don't. No, you don't. I'll prove to you you don't. Georgia won a game by seven yesterday. It's a national crisis. It's the crisis of the moment. I'm going to lead the show with it. I was at the game yesterday. They won a game by seven. How dare they? And uh, folks are criticizing them for it. That's because they're held to a different standard than other contenders. You notice how Washington also won a game by seven? No? What are you saying? You didn't notice that they only squeaked by Arizona's backup quarterback by seven? It's not a big deal. There is no freak out. Why? Because you expect more from Georgia than you do from Washington. Even if some people on my eye, Josh, in my close personal social circle claim otherwise. We are jam-packed. We are high atop a wide-open downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Every bit as wide open as that old playoff picture that we swear we'll never talk about until the month of November, but may very well do tonight. It is Sunday, October 1st, the year of our Lord, 2023. I got full week five reaction. Who is a contender? How do we even define the word contender these days? I've got to talk to you about that. I'm seeing things, I'm hearing things, I'm thinking things that I thought I'd never see, hear, and think on October 1st, and yet here we are. I've got to talk to you about where we're going this Saturday for the week six destination of the Once Upon a Saturday Tour. I don't know if it's going to be the longest Sunday show we've ever done, but man, from an elemental standpoint, from a... From an atonement standpoint, I've got to say I'm sorry a number of times tonight, which you know I love. It's going to be a jam-packed show. They're watching us in Auburn, Alabama. We were there yesterday. They're watching us in Fresno, California. Uh, Fresno failed to cover last night. They gave up a touchdown with 11 seconds to go to Nevada, and it cut some of us very deeply. That's all I'll say about that. They're watching us in Ashburn, Virginia, and Newburgh, Indiana, I think most of you are following on Instagram, but if you're not, man, did you miss some good behind-the-scenes content yesterday at Auburn, Georgia. At Late Kick Josh, if you're not following already, great stuff there. Uh, I, don't know what to tell us. I don't know what else to tell you. I'm, I'm telling you, I was there. It was the CBS Saturday game of the week, and there's probably stuff in that Instagram story even the CBS cameras didn't capture. So it's free. There's, there's no catch. I'm just telling you, you need to be following over there. With that in mind, let us with a double clap, dive into tonight's show. Georgia beat Auburn yesterday, 27-20. to 20. Now, once upon a time in this rivalry, it was a little more evenly matched. Therefore, once upon a time, this would be a great story for Georgia. But now Georgia all of a sudden has won a couple of national championships, ho-hum, yawn-yawn, and therefore only winning by seven is viewed with a pejorative light cast upon it. I could fill 100 garbage trucks, by the way, with the criticism we got when we told you we were taking the Once Upon a Saturday tour to this game. Why would you do that? That's going to be a blowout. Georgia's the number one team in the country. Auburn's hot garbage. Didn't you see what they didn't do against AM last week? I saw it, friends. I saw it. I also wasn't shocked at the outcome yesterday. I wasn't shocked that Auburn led in this thing. I explained to you why what ended up happening was going to happen. We're not always right about everything, True enough, sometimes coaches and kids and officials screw it up, so we've never been wrong, but sometimes we're made to look wrong. But in this one, we were dead on the money. Georgia to win, Auburn to cover, bada-bing, bada-boom. I do have to tell you, though, just, just one quick thing as we dive into this game. I was guilty, even though we got the game right, I was guilty of, well, I was guilty of fake news yesterday, and it pains me, and this is my first of about three or four apologies in the show tonight. 
not going to be my best look tonight. I got to Jordan-Hare Stadium like nine hours early yesterday because we had CBS HQ obligations, which I'm happy to do, by the way. And so I had the worst thing in the world that I could have on my hands. Free time in an empty football stadium. So I got to wandering around. And I know Jordan-Hare Stadium like the back of my hand. I've been there many, many times. So I walk up George's Tunnel. George is not even there yet. And I see this fascinating contraption. And if you actually saw the tweet I put out, and judging by the numbers, most of you did, I, I took video of it. It's this contraption. It's this trailer, on, like on wheels, as most trailers are, and it's got six bathrooms on it. It's mobile bathrooms. Now, these things have been around for a long time, but as you guys know, it does not take much to impress me and to fascinate me. And so I thought America needed to see this, because I've told you for a long time, the visiting accommodations in the SEC are not accommodations at all. They're just places that you can temporarily exist. There's not enough room for the bigger teams, and Georgia's one of those bigger teams. And by bigger, I mean they carry more folks, more staff on the road. And uh, so when Alabama, when Georgia, when they roll in there, when LSU rolls in there, everything just kind of spills out into the concourse, into the walkway. They're just it's the beauty of, of home field and going on the road in the SEC and college football. Well, I thought that Georgia, in that attention to detail that's specific only to a razor-sharp few programs in America, I thought they had taken it upon themselves to bring their own bathrooms. I was fooled. And I put it out there for the masses, and I told you Georgia has such great attention to detail, they brought their own bathrooms to Jordan-Hare Stadium. And it went all over the place. And then... Kirk Sampson, longtime Auburn SID, or as we know him here, a living, breathing angel, kindly texted me as I was on my way home last night and said, uh, just so you know, we've, we've had those there all year. That's not a Georgia thing. And I, it was kind of like slapping someone with a text message. And I know that he meant it out of love, and he sent it out of love. He even put a double fist emoji afterwards probably meant to punch me, but I took it as just a solid fist bump. You'll do better. Make sure you atone for this on the show tomorrow night. So I am. So uh, I take that back. I officially retract that. Georgia did not bring their own bathrooms. They did bring Brock Bowers, though, and it turns out that's all they needed. I actually felt like most of America had no clue who Georgia was going into this game. Most of America has not watched Georgia to this point during the season. You kind of know that they trailed South Carolina and came back and won. You may or may not have watched that game. You certainly didn't watch them against Kent State or UT Chattanooga, nor should you have. That's what I'm here for, so you don't have to watch all that. But the trade-off, if you hadn't watched those games, is you saw the number one next to Georgia's name. You just assume it's a rinse-repeat version of what they've been the last two years. It's not. They're not, that, they're not as good as those teams. I'm not saying they're not that good, relatively speaking, and maybe they will end up being that, but they started slow against UT Martin. They started slow against Ball State. Where in the world did I get the names of the teams I just said? They hadn't played either one of those. Anyway, they played the equivalent of UT Chat. They played the equivalent of Kent State, and they struggled. They trailed South Carolina 14-3 at the half. Uh, they didn't particularly come out on fire out of the gate against UAB. So they've had issues all year, but I don't think most of America knew about that. So most of America knew the number one team in the country was going to play a team that A&M just drug. And that's really not how this sport works. It's not how this rivalry works, and especially the external dynamics of being in wounded animal mode, having lost on the road and coming back home, it doesn't lend itself to another blowout. Just, it's rarely the way it happens. But the one thing America did know about Georgia is they got number 19. 
He's probably the best football player in the country right now. And if he's not, he's on a short list for that. And it turns out that's all you needed to know because that's who took over the game in the second half. Very modest numbers for Brock Bowers in the first half, but he took over in the second half, and it was dominant. It was, a, it was all, all eyes on him, all attention being paid to him. Got pretty wide open on that square in on third down. But other than that, it didn't really matter what Auburn did. And think about that. I'm not even talking about a wide receiver. I'm talking about a tight end that is mismatched city. For the most athletic of secondaries in the country, still mismatched city. So that happened, and, and Brock Bowers had more. Brock Bowers is Georgia's best receiving option by a mile, obviously, but he also, everybody knows that, and like he still took over the game. But the thing that I did not know and was still unaware of until I left the stadium last night was a lot of Georgia fans were being critical of Carson Beck. And I'm just sitting here telling you, I don't even know what game you watched. We didn't watch the same game. If you're critical of Carson Beck, I know you just had Stetson Bennett put up a Heisman caliber season. And I know you're watching like Michael Penix up at Washington go off. And you're watching Jaden Daniels down at LSU do incredible things. That's not what you have. It's not the offense you run. It's not the quarterback you have. And I watched Carson Beck last night, who is the quarterback you have, go on the road for the first time. I think some people have lost. I think a lot of people have lost all sense of what it takes to win on the road in college football because it is not easy. I was in Kirby's postgame press conference last night. Uh, he gets this stuff. I think he probably gets it about as much as any coach because he always talks about it. It is so insanely hard to do that stuff, to go on the road when everybody's got you circled, by the way, to go on the road and to, as your first start as a road quarterback, not let the moment overwhelm you. I was on the field yesterday. When Auburn takes a 10-0 lead, do you have any idea what that play sounded like? Did Carson Beck ever look rattled? He threw an interception, by the way. Did he ever look rattled? Did, did you ever have that deer-in-the-headlights moment? Because he got wiped out a time or two as well. They, they call that baptism in college football. That's what they call that. When you go on the road and you get your clock totally clean for the first time, how do you respond the next drive? He was fine. He, he looked to number 19, which is exactly what the quarterback at Georgia should do. He found Brock Bowers. So I looked at it, and he goes 23 of 33, touchdown and interception. Second half, he comes alive, multiple clutch throws when they need it. And I'm thinking to myself, with the defense that Georgia has, which is not elite right now, but still very good, that's exactly what I would want. I would want a guy not to wilt under the pressure. I'd want him to make some pressure throws in the second half, find my playmakers, get out of there with a win. That's exactly what he did. Check, 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 check. And so I go into Kirby's postgame press conference. I come back out on the field. I do my postgame stuff for CBS. And we pack up and we're on the road. And I'm finding out via the eye, Josh, people are criticizing Carson Beck. When I say people... I mean, people in Clayton and Rome and Valdosta and Ty Ty and Brunswick. What are you people thinking? I'm t I say you people. I can speak to my home state crowd like this. Are you, are you crazy? You ought to be excited about what you saw yesterday. That's not the ceiling. It's not the finished product of Carson Beck. That's the floor. Like that's the, that's the entry point for him this season. And for a lot of ways, that's the entry point for your team this season. Uh, Kirby's been honest about this all year. Kirby Smart's been dead honest about this team the entire season. If you want to know about Georgia, just listen to the head coach. He's not one that sugarcoats stuff. They've had slow starts multiple times. Uh, I imagine they're trying every which way 
to rectify that. There, there is no, you don't go to the store and buy the solution to start games faster. They've had, they had turnover issues yesterday that almost cost them a game. They're not as good up front defensively as they have been. He talked to us on this show about that over the summer. They don't have an elite receiver. They got an elite tight end. And the run game is not on par with some of the higher-level run games they've had in the past. That spells out a vulnerable team. Really good team, but a vulnerable team. Georgia's not an elite team right now. They didn't come into Auburn elite. They didn't leave Auburn elite. They also are not a finished product of what they could be. That's what a lot of teams have in common uh, when you exit week five. And so I'm excited to see where they go. But, man, I, I, the biggest takeaway I had was I, I think because folks go into the Xbox mentality of just seeing Auburn struggle in a game mightily, knowing Georgia's got the one next to their name, they're favored by two touchdowns, that's it. That's how the game's going to play out. Fights are not scripted. That's just not the way it works. When you get down 10-0, if you did have it scripted, throw it all out the window. And all of a sudden, it's a fight for four quarters, and the, the, the crowd that sits at home on the couch and thinks that games are played on this right here, I know yesterday didn't make a lot of sense to you, but if you've been around this stuff, if you watched it, I don't care if you coached it or played it, if you've watched it and you know how to properly interpret this sport, yesterday was not shocking at all. I don't think less of Georgia. I don't necessarily think a whole lot more of Auburn. I got what I thought I would get from the game. Auburn is one or two cycles away still from having the kind of roster that doesn't need multiple turnovers to be in this game that doesn't need home field to be in this game. In other words, if this game's in Athens, Georgia yesterday, probably plays out a little bit different. And so, yes, it's good. It's great that Auburn hung in this game. It's admirable. It means there's a lot of fight on that team. It means Hugh Freeze is probably getting everything and then some out of that roster that he can. Uh, they're not a good football team right now. He knows that. His staff knows that. They're very upfront and honest about that. And they also know they can change it. And they're also very confident they're going to change it. They got the resources to change it. They got the mentality to change it. But you saw him do some different things at quarterback yesterday. You saw Peyton Thorne run all over the place. Did you see that last week? Not necessarily. You saw Robbie Ashford in the game a little bit. Uh, you saw play calling switch up yesterday. All of those things were part of the impetus for us picking Auburn to cover the spread yesterday. Because when you try things and they don't work, i.e. Auburn against Texas A&M, there's no incentive to keep doing it. So they threw some stuff against the wall yesterday. Some of it stuck, enough of it stuck for it to be a four-quarter game. And there you go. Environment was off the charts. Environment was what you would expect there when you get an early lead. Uh, there were a lot of people kind of questioning whether Auburn could hang. You can always feel that vibe. When a building starts to fill up, you can close your eyes. I don't know what it is about the vibe and the way you can feel it, but you can feel it. Maybe it's a sixth sense. I don't know. You know what? I'm going to go with that. I have a sixth sense, and I can just I can feel these sorts of things. It's a gift. It's a talent. That sounds a lot better. So you could tell they wanted a reason to believe. Then all of a sudden, they get a reason to believe. Two of them. They get two early scores. Uh, from that point on, vintage Jordan-Hare Stadium. Extremely loud, which makes it all the more impressive to me that Carson Beck and that offense were able to operate like they did. I mean, there weren't a critical amount of false starts and procedural penalties at all. That's the way it should have been for a, a first-time starter on the road, and it wasn't. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think a whole lot more plus or minus from either of these teams. Georgia is a really good team capable of still winning a championship, but they've got deficiencies. Uh, Auburn is 
10 fingers trying to plug 13 holes in the dam, but still capable on any given sort of Saturday, especially when you leverage home field and turnovers to be able to do something like this. Guys, when you can play defense at that level and you can guarantee that you're going to hold the opposition in the high teens, low 20s, it greatly increases the margins of opportunity that you have. Knowing you don't have to score 40. You don't have to do what LSU found out they had to do yesterday, in other words. Great experience. They always take care of us at Auburn. I didn't go to Auburn. Uh, Nobody in my immediate family went to Auburn. I didn't grow up in Auburn. Going to Auburn still always feels like a homecoming for me. I did grow up 45 minutes away, so that's probably got a lot to do with it. But we appreciate them. They always take care of us. And that was where the Once Upon a Saturday tour was yesterday, which begs the question, does it not? Where will the Once Upon a Saturday tour be this week? Well, I did not want to bury this deep in the show because I'm excited about it. I was also conflicted about it, but I tweeted out earlier today. I had arrived at a conclusion for where we were going this year or this, this week, and I'm at peace with it. And I am at peace with it, but anyone who's been around this show knows week six, two years ago, I made... Let's just go ahead and call it what it is, the biggest mistake of my life. We were credentialed for the Red River Shootout, and we were also credentialed for Alabama at Texas A&M. One was an 11 a.m. kickoff, Central. One was a 7 o'clock kickoff, Central. Could have easily gone to both. I go to Red River. It's the highest scoring game in the history of that rivalry. Instant classic. Unbelievable. And I think to myself, That's it. We've gotten our fill for the day. Bama's favored by like three touchdowns in College Station. I don't want to go down there and see a blowout. So I'm on a plane flying home somewhere over Arkansas, thanks to free Southwest Wi-Fi. I am watching A&M take down Alabama, knowing I could have been there. See see two field stormings in one day. Whomst amongst us gets that opportunity. Me. And I threw it in the garbage. So here we are again. Same week. Bama's going on the road to A&M. 2.30 kickoff on CBS this week. And we've got OU, Texas, 11 a.m. at the State Fair. We've got Kentucky at Georgia. All all Kentucky did was run for half a mile yesterday against Florida. More on that in a little while. So where are we going? We're going to the Red River Shootouts where we're going. We're headed to the Texas State Fair. And then inside that Texas State Fair, as the funnel cake wafts over everyone, we have got top 10 Oklahoma. We got top 10 Texas. It is the highest ranked these teams have been in this rivalry, I think, or maybe it's undefeated this late in the season since like 2011. I am jacked for this. Went there two years ago. I get to go back again. I think that a lot of America probably looks at this Saturday as maybe a referendum on Not Steve Sarkeesian because he's got the Bama win, but I don't think a lot of people have been watching Oklahoma. Oklahoma's been off the radar. You've just seen their final scores. Oklahoma is going to be introduced to a lot of America this Saturday. I'm really excited about it. This was the game two years ago where Spencer Rattler gets booed by his own fans, and then this kid named Caleb Williams comes in and leads Oklahoma to victory. Unbelievable. Storyline, storyline, storyline. It's, this game's never scripted, obviously, but it kind of feels that way. It's just like dripping with drama and intrigue. This is going to be an SEC contest next year, but it's Big 12 this year, and we're going to be there, and I cannot wait. And small reminder, as of right now, in the Pate State store, patestatematerial.com, the shirt's there. 
Auburn bought bonkers numbers of their shirts yesterday for the tour stop there. Well, the tour is headed to Dallas, Texas, and the real Cotton Bowl, the OG Cotton Bowl this Saturday. Again, I cannot wait. This is a game where there are no luxury suites. Random billionaires walk by you on the sidelines. It's, it's unbelievable. And there it is, the Once Upon a Saturday shirt. Headed to Dallas, Texas this weekend. That shirt will be available for one week and one week only. PateStateMaterial.com. Let's continue in the show. I am so happy we just made that announcement. USC beat Colorado yesterday. USC beat Colorado 48-41 yesterday. This was a page-turner game to me. There's been a lot of talk about Colorado, as there should be. It's been the story of college football. It was, it was like a, a three-month month. That's how long September felt. College football seasons are so long. They're so long. I think Colorado started to find that out in the best of ways. I mean, if they're talking about you, normally it's for good reasons. But this was a page-turner game because I think a lot of folks got worked up when they beat TCU in Nebraska, again, as they should have. But they started looking down the road. Ooh, they're going to play Oregon. Ooh, they're going to play USC. Ooh, they'll lose both those games. Well, they did, and they did. Now that's a page-turner because a lot of the casual energy and a lot of the casuals that were attracted as long as you're undefeated, will fall by the wayside. But there'll still be a ton of attention on this program. I just think it'll be more based in realism. Like the ones that are going to be paying attention to Colorado now are folks who understand it's a, it's a miracle what Dion's done, period. Already they've overachieved, and they shouldn't be competitive yet with Oregon and shouldn't really have been competitive as they were yesterday against Southern Cal. They were. Testament. Credit. Give credit where it's due. But also... Let's keep our feet on the ground when talking about Colorado. But on this show, we do like to talk about the winner first. And I just kind of violated that rule. And I'm sure the folks over on the Peristyle will have a lot of fun with that. If you know, you know. USC, 40-plus in every game so far this year. Caleb Williams yesterday, he knew. He knew America was watching him. 30 of 40, 403, six touchdowns. Yes, that was USC quarterback defending, well, reigning Heisman Trophy winner Caleb Williams Day. Very interesting game. Dominant first half from USC that then gets overshadowed because Colorado mounts this furious comeback. And sometimes, I'm not saying this is what happened yesterday, sometimes teams that don't necessarily have championship medal about themselves yet, in other words, Teams that are prone to taking their foot off the gas and not playing to a standard for four quarters, which is 98% of teams, they get up so big that they let their foot off the gas. It's very psychological. You, you say you don't want to do it, but you can't help it. I Look, that's what it felt like USC did to me yesterday. And it sounds so counterintuitive, but it's almost a situation where in retrospect you look back and say, man, I, I wish they would have only led... 17 to 7 in the second quarter instead of 34 to 7. Because once it got to 34 to 7, everyone starts packing it up. Hey, who we got next week? And oh, by, oh, wait, wait, what's Colorado doing? Oh, the game's not over yet. Boom. They're right in your rear view. It's 48-41 onside kick. Who knows what could happen? US, here's what I'm saying. USC looked very sus, sus F, if you will, in the second half. That was the most dominant half of football I've seen them play in the first half, though. I'm not forgetting either one of them is my point. I'm not going to forget the first half where I said, uh, they're flexing. They're, they're flexing in a game they should flex in, but they're flexing. And then the second half, 
uh, were those popcorn muscles? Have they just been doing buys and tries and calves every day? And it's still TBD because we still really hadn't seen them tested against an equally equipped opponent. But I got to credit Colorado too. Now, uh, in a lot of ways, the second half of this game showed me more than any other game Colorado's played so far this year. Casuals won't believe that because they lost the game. They lost the game they're supposed to lose. They lost the game they were supposed to lose by three-plus scores, and they were down and had every reason to check out and fought back. Now, again, a casual would say, well, what were they going to do besides fight back? Uh, quit. Quit. Check out mentally. That's what they were going to do. If you don't believe me, turn on your TV. Folks do it every week. Teams do it every week. Even early in the season, teams do it every week. So uh, Dion's got full buy-in out there. I think that's been pretty obvious. But it taught me a lot about the competitive character of Colorado's program. Not just individual players, but the program. But I'll tell you what else it taught me about. It taught me about USC's defense. Maybe it didn't teach me anything I didn't already know. But it reminded me. That's a better word. It reminded me something about USC's defense. 18 missed tackles yesterday. Colorado cannot run the ball, and they ran it for 193 yards yesterday. Lincoln Riley was asked after the game, do you still have confidence in Alex Grinch, the defensive coordinator? Three words, quote, yes, I do, unquote. I don't expect anything otherwise from him. I've told you I thought this was a prove-it year for Alex Grinch. It's an ongoing year. I'm fully willing to not judge it as it's currently unfolding, but... I'm looking at this USC schedule, and they are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 0 now. They got Arizona coming up. Tricky, but they got Arizona coming up. And then that run starts. There is a run. There are six games at the end of the year where they go at Notre Dame, Utah, at Cal, Washington, at Oregon, UCLA. They could end up undefeated. They could end up a two or three loss team. Have no clue. I feel like I know the least about USC is any of these highly ranked teams. It's not their fault. It's the schedule. So it's no one's really fault. But Dion's been right. Colorado is coming. They absolutely are coming. Nothing about these two games uh, takes me off of that. In fact, it probably even speeds up that thought around the entire Colorado program. I think he's right. I think Dion's right when he says this is the worst we'll be. So I buy into everything he's saying. I actually, think, I actually think when you get down to the substance of what Deion Sanders has been about with this program, it's been pretty awesome because he's been brutally honest. The Cormani McLean stuff, for example. Cormani McLean was a five-star DB that it came down to the wire with, and Colorado got him. And he goes out there, and everyone just assumes all of the incoming transfers and true freshmen are going to start, especially the five-star kids. And you were right, most of them have. McLean has not. So Dion's been asked about him. And Dion said, Well, Cormani McLean's holding Cormani McLean back. He's talking about a true freshman. And not throwing him under the bus, but I imagine when Dion Sanders set that kid down and said, If you want to come play for me, this is how you're going to be treated. I'm treating you like a man. This is the NIL world, by the way. This is the world where we pay you for your services. You can call it whatever you want to, but that's what it is. We are paying you a, a, essentially a salary for your services. That's called employment. Again, not officially, but in the world of employment, you're given something and something is expected in return, and when you don't fulfill that end of the bargain, 
you're handled not with kid gloves, you're handled with adult standards. And he's handled that kid with adult standards. You notice I say kid with adult standards uh, because I still think of that as a kid. But he ain't treated him like one. But at the same time, he, he's not impugned his character or anything like that. I imagine Coromine McLean's got immense respect for Deion Sanders because of that. And so I, like I've, that's a microcosm of a lot of the ways he's gone about his business out there. I got a lot of respect for it. It's different. I don't mind that. Some people mind that, and that's, that's fine. That's your total prerogative and constitutional right to feel that way. But he's been right about everything he said. I still think he's right. It's just they lost the game yesterday. They'll probably lose some more. And yet I will view them as a massive overachiever at the end of the year. USC, current odds to win the Pac-12 championship, still the favorite. Washington second, Oregon third. There is virtually no separation in the odds market between the three. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, Academy Sports and Outdoors, your one-stop shop for all things outdoor sporting goods. Plus, when I was in Auburn yesterday, I looked across the sea of tailgates, and it was just littered with Academy, whether it was grills, even though it's not an Academy grill. Could be a Traeger, could be a Pit Boss, but we had a number of grills that I know good and well were purchased from Academy because the tents the folks were under were Academy, the chairs they were sitting in were Academy, beautiful thing. Academy Sports and Outdoors makes this show free to you. And if you cannot get there in person, that's totally fine. They understand it. I understand it. Academy.com is your hookup. And I always say, tell them I sent you. Regrettably, it does not get you a discount, but I just, I think it makes me feel good. And so it makes me really feel good when you guys snap pictures of those receipts in the parking lot. And then you randomly DM them to me. I forward them right on to Academy. I forward them right on to our reps. So Academy Sports and Outdoors, make sure you make a trip over there, especially as the seasons start to transition. You need some new outerwear. You need new a lot of things, and I know good and well they've got it. So Academy is your hookup, academy.com, if you can't get there in person. Oh, my goodness. I've been waiting to talk about this game. <clears throat> Welcome in. If you're watching live, we have... Thousands upon thousands watching live, but we only have 778 likes. Mathematically, it is a, it is a fact we can do a lot better. So click the thumbs up button. I'm going to give you three seconds while I take a sip from the chalice. Okay, we're back. <laughs> Ole Miss with the double nickel last night, 55 to 49. They beat LSU. What do we love on this show? We love a wounded animal. Scratch that. We love teams in wounded animal mode at PETA. Um, we had Ole Miss in wounded animal mode, did we not? We had Auburn in wounded animal mode, and they put up a fight. Well, Ole Miss goes to Bama. They lose. They come home. They're facing LSU. We picked Ole Miss to win last week. Some people chimed in, as expected, but that's okay. So we, we end up nailing this one. Immunity. And yet I listened to it on the way home last night. 
And I was like, it, I had some thoughts about LSU, but we talk about the winners first on this show. Styles make fights. The style of these two teams did not favor LSU in this one. Is this a signature win for Lane Kiffin? I'd say, yeah, it is. It may not be the biggest win he ever gets, but to this point, man, he needed it. Ole Miss's season was on the line yesterday, and this was Jackson Dart's day. I Like, remember, such a long time ago now, remember in spring and then SEC media days, we're talking about, yeah, Jackson Dart's there, but, oh, man, we got some transfers coming in there. Spencer Sanders transferred there from Oklahoma State. Where is he? Where is he? He's on the bench because Jackson Dart did what he should have done. Take it as a personal challenge. Lock down my job, and it's his job, and it never wasn't his job. And he goes 26 for 39 yesterday. 389 through the air, another 50 on the ground, five total touchdowns, total warrior effort because he got knocked around big time the week before. And I always love watching dudes. How, do, how does a team respond, and how do you respond after, after you get grass-stained the week before? Ole Miss got grass-stained last week, and they – Played the game of the year to this point for themselves last night. Quinchon Judkins, they've tried to get him back healthy, and I don't know what percentage he was at last night, but 33 carries for 177 yards and a receiving touchdown as well as a rushing touchdown. Good enough for me. He, he's so good. He, it, <laughs> it was a fight for them to keep him. I imagine you know exactly what I'm talking about, but they kept him. I imagine Lane Kiffin after last year, walking into those meetings when they're first getting cranked up on 2023 and everyone's trying to figure out, what are we going to do schematically? Hey, what are we, which players are we going to target? I imagine him walking in, dropping a pen on the table and say, how about we keep number four? How about that? How about we keep number four home before we decide who we're going to try and go out and get? Uh, they did. They kept him home. And now Quinshawn Judkins, week by week, looks a little bit more, a little bit more healthy. Man, college football games are so much looser. They can get so much more loose than NFL games do. I don't ever hate on the pro game, but the college game is my game. Saturdays are for us around here. And I got to show you some footage. You know Ole Miss won yesterday. You know they stormed the field. Director Collin has procured some footage from Vaught-Hemingway Stadium yesterday of exactly what it looks like when an Ole Miss... Rebel just gets a little bit too caught up in the moment. And if you're watching on podcast, picture a young man uh, of varying degrees of inebriation doing certain unspeakable things to a goalpost. And now he's standing on the goalpost. And now he is making out, tongue and all, with the goalpost. He has now climbed a solid 10 feet up the upright and is still passionately making out with that upright. But that's not what caps it off. What caps it off is he slides down very orderly, and then in true Jeff Hardy, WWF Attitude Era fashion, Swanton Bomb. Onto nothing. Just front flips onto the ground below, and there are two officers waiting to take him away. Uh, this is Saturday. That is what Saturdays are about. That doesn't happen on Sunday. Sunday's so orderly. The NFL's like sitting back, filing its fingernails. Saturday is some kid doing a front flip onto grass. His coccyx is probably screaming at him today, but nothing could stop him last night. Now, I don't know who that kid is. And I'm not going to go as far as to say he's paid state material because I don't really know what he was on. 
But I like to think those officers took him by the arm, escorted him up the nearest tunnel, and then said, go on, get out of here, enjoy your night. That's what I like to think. And if anyone knows otherwise, don't bother telling me. It's a shame. It's a shame to watch what Jaden Daniels is this year. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's awesome to watch him play. LSU's got the best quarterback in the SEC right now. Jaden Daniels was really good last year, and he is that kind of story of someone that was really good, didn't settle, and became great. He is a great quarterback this year. He was 27 of 34 yesterday, 513 total yards, four touchdowns. That should be good enough 10 times out of 10 for LSU football, and it wasn't good enough yesterday because they're not good defensively. They're bad. They're bad defensively. And I wish I could say it's shocking, but it's not really shocking. And I know it's not because we brought Brian Kelly on this show a few months ago, and he warned you. But even you, you're around these guys every day. How can you really know when you take that many guys out of a portal in that same position room, mm -hmm. how can you ever really know what's coming? You don't, and that's why there's still a red flag that, that flies over our program in a sense of if you really evaluate where we are, um, you would say that's too many guys to take out of the portal, and it was on defense. It wasn't on offense because we're ahead of where we are. But we're still a year away from a recruiting standpoint where it's player development with freshmen and developing your players from within and not having to take 12 guys out of the portal on defense. So if you're really looking at it carefully, it's, it's a red flag because you don't know until you get out there whether Zaya Alexander, who we took from southeast Louisiana, is going to be the field corner that we expect him to be. Those are a, a number of the questions that we have going into the season. Colin, it sounds to me like there's music coming off of this piece of paper, and that can only mean one thing. This was our Sarah McLaughlin special. The LSU defense was our Sarah McLaughlin special. This brings me no joy to my friends in the boot. LSU's defense yesterday, nine passes allowed of 15-plus yards, 12 runs allowed of 15-plus yards, 706 total yards given up. Ole Miss didn't even have half of that the week before against Alabama. They gave up eight yards per play, no sacks, all that talent in the front seven, no sacks. They allowed 317 on the ground. Ole Miss had 56 on the ground against Bama. Pro Football Focus tells us they missed 30 tackles in yesterday's game. 3-0, 30 in one game. That's a bad month. They missed 30 last night. I don't know what Brian Kelly is going to do about his defensive staff, but it's not good enough. And I think that's painfully, and I do mean painfully with a capital P, painfully obvious enough after last night and probably even before that. But it is what it is right now. I think changes are going to come there. That's a virtual certainty. But they're not going to come in October or November. It's going to be after the season. And until then, it kind of just is what it is. And this is a place that likes to fancy itself DBU with good reason. This year is not one of those reasons. And the fact that the LSU secondary and defense was the Sarah McLaughlin special is hashtag sad. That's what it is. Ole Miss's drive chart. Touchdown, punt, touchdown, 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 field goal, punt, field goal, touchdown, downs, touchdown, touchdown. End of game. 55. Congratulations to Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss. Listen, that's only LSU's first conference loss. So both of them have a conference loss now. 
Bama is about to play A&M this Saturday. One of them will have a conference loss. Whew, the SEC West. Good luck figuring that one out. Next up, let's head over to beautiful Knoxville, Tennessee. Just giving you time there, Colin. Tennessee 41, South Carolina 20. You know the model was all over Tennessee last week. Loved them. We ended up making it a Ramen Noodle Express best bet. And we ended up getting a big Tennessee win. Tennessee's pass rush was one thing that we were focused on in this one. And the second thing was how disproportionately reliant South Carolina has been on one player. Now, it's a good player. It's the quarterback, Spencer Rattler, but they've been really relying on him. We looked at those two, didn't like the matchup at all for South Carolina, but there was one thing that really started to pop in this game that I didn't necessarily see coming, and that was Tennessee's run game. Tennessee had 10 runs of 10-plus yards in this game, 40 carries, 238 yards, three touchdowns. They just went off on the ground. And so what we saw was Joe Milton probably with the ability to break out in the pass game. That really didn't happen. They had 239 passing yards, but they had 238 rushing yards. So they just figured, we'll just run all over South Carolina. And they didn't rewrite the record books, but they did more than enough to pull away and win because they, they ended up having six sacks. And that was the other thing. Their pass rush did get after it. You know, Tennessee's defensive front is not going to get focused on because people think of them as an offensive first team. Tennessee's got a really good defensive front right now. Offensive line probably played the best game to date. They've played all year last night. So did their defensive front. It's going to be overshadowed because they lost Brew McCoy. And Brew McCoy was their best pass catcher, uh, best perimeter blocker, and had a devastating injury. We wish him all the best. It sucks. I know it takes the life out of a stadium when you got an injury like that that overshadows otherwise what was a great night in Knoxville. I, I know a bunch of people had that game circled. Incredible environment. Director Collin was there. Cole Kublik was there. So it was the place to be, obviously, up there on the river. But, man, I, I'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, I do want to hit on South Carolina right quick because we got a padlock stat here. There you go. Padlock stat. Last year in this game, South Carolina destroyed Tennessee. Spencer Rattler was the reason. 438 through the air, six touchdowns. That was the stat line last year. It seems to me, a time or two this week, Tennessee's defensive staff emphasized that we're not going to let him beat us with his arm. Let's go to the tape. Last night, Spencer Rattler, 169 through the air, threw a pick six, and that is your padlock stat. I don't need to know anything else. If you tell me Rattler's going under 170 through the air, Tennessee's going to win the game. Don't really need to know anything else. They were, South Carolina being they, 2 of 14 on third down. They were 2 of 5 on fourth down. I did get asked a lot what I thought about Spencer Rattler after this game, saying, well, good for Tennessee. This was their Super Bowl. Uh, This is not one of the two biggest games Tennessee will play this year. They were hyped up for it. You're not the Super Bowl. I'm sorry, sir. You're not the Super Bowl. You just happen to be a greasy spot they left in Neyland Stadium last night, but you're not the Super Bowl. Brew McCoy is out for the season. I despise that I just said that. So that will lead a lot of people to look at Tennessee and say, that's a big, big detrimental blow, which it is. It's not a fatal blow at all. Their defensive line played outstanding last night. Half a dozen sacks. Their offensive line. They found the right combination. Stick with it. 
Um, they probably played their best game to date last night. Their ground game, as I said, 10 runs of 10-plus yards. They got some things going for them. They're a flawed team. They've got that in common with everyone else. Nobody, nobody knows how the SEC is going to shake out. They got a stretch coming up where they play A&M, and they play at Bama, and they play at Kentucky. And that's just brutality three weeks in a row. And there aren't many teams out there that can stand up to that. And I am wholeheartedly including Kentucky in that. So those are like crowbars to your shins three weeks in a row. Hopefully you come out still recognizable on the other side. But who knows? I mean, maybe Tennessee can get after you physically as well. Because they did with South Carolina last night. Let's keep rolling on because we've got, I got many, many, many more games to talk about. And I, look, I want to talk about, and I rarely say this, I want to talk about the playoff. I feel like such a sellout. I feel like more of a sellout telling you I'm going to talk about the playoff tonight than I did when I had to wear the black shirt on air a couple of weeks ago or last week. Last Sunday night, actually. But it's going to happen, so stick around. And appreciate you guys if you're watching live. Thumbs up. Click that like button if you're watching live. Kentucky made an example of Florida yesterday, 33-14. to 14. I want you to imagine something. You're in a car. You're in a truck. Choose your mode of transportation. Drive a city bus for all I care. And you turn down a road, and there's a dead-end sign. What would you do? Would you, A, stop, B, stop and put it in reverse, or C, hit the gas and just double barrel middle finger to the world. Let's just see what happens. I chose option C. This time last year, I picked against Kentucky. And Mark Stoops taught me why you don't pick against Kentucky when they play Florida. So all I did was try the exact same thing again a year later. This is me a year ago. Kentucky made a fool out of me. And I went on air and I held up a sign, if you're listening on podcast, that says the following. Dear Mark Stoops, I am sorry. X-O-X-O-J-P. Now... I join you in present day to tell you, dear Mark Stoops, I'm once again sorry, XOXO still, JP, I hope we can remain friends. Why do I do this to myself? Why do I believe in Florida on the road? I thought they'd beat Utah, dumb. I thought they'd beat Kentucky, dumb. And it's dumb because they're not a good team on the road. They haven't been for a while. But let's talk about the winner. Let's talk about the winning team here. Um, can Guys, can you show me, I say guys, Jesse and Colin, can you show me the quarterback comparison graphic? Because this is mind-blowing. This is what we would call a fake padlock stat or a fake padlock graphic. Because I got the real padlock stat coming in a second. I want you to imagine, here it is, knock on the door Friday. Someone walks in and says, hello, I'm from the future. Perhaps it's the alien. The alien says... And what the alien just said, translated, is Graham Mertz is going to go 25 of 30, 244 through the air, two touchdowns, one interception. Okay, alien, sounds like a pretty good day for Graham Mertz. What did Devin Leary do? It's his coming out party, right? He goes 9 of 19, 69 yards through the air. Wow, Florida went up there and got it done, didn't they? No, 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 they didn't. That's a fake padlock stat. 
That would mislead you. That takes you down all the wrong roads and you end up betting irresponsible amounts of money on Florida. That was not a padlock stat. Here's the real padlock stat. Ray Davis is the real padlock stat. 26 carries, 280 yards, three touchdowns. Kentucky, as a team, ran the ball all the way down Florida's throat and found out what they had for lunch earlier. 329 rushing yards. Kentucky... I am not kidding when I tell you this, had 9.1 yards per carry against a real-life SEC opponent, 9.1 yards per carry. Florida got owned. Florida got physically owned. They just got put on skates to the point where it didn't even matter if Kentucky's quarterback couldn't throw his way out of a wet paper bag. He didn't need to. That's the embarrassment. That's the embarrassment for Florida. It's the statement for Kentucky. What hurts the most, for me, is we knew. We, we knew about Kentucky. We knew. Colin, show me, show me the tweet. Not from someone else, from me. This is a tweet from me when we were in August. And trust me, I got a fair amount of criticism for this. August 17th, the year of our Lord, 2023. Your, your, yours truly puts out the following. Some of the best intel I'm hearing from any camp is coming out of Kentucky. There'll be a problem. And then I forgot my own words. I forgot my own words. Oh, and by the way, not just that. Not just did we tell you Kentucky's going to be a problem. We zoomed right into the specific player who was going to be the problem. Roll it, Colin. He good offense there. Ray Davis, 5'10", 216. Ranked 125th overall. Number 11 running back in the portal class. I think he'll perform a little bit more admirably than those numbers would suggest. What have I become? It's like multiple personality. I got one over here that's nailing everything, and then I got me who says, don't listen to him. He has no clue what he's talking about. Kentucky's going to be a good portal team for a while. They got Leary. They got Ray Davis. Kentucky, as we said in August on a different show, I think, Kentucky is the kind of place that does not wow five-star kids out of high school. They will not land most of them. But it's a rock-solid program. Everything's buttoned up. It's not flash. Kentucky is all substance, virtually no flash. And that doesn't attract premier recruits out of high school. But I'll tell you what it does. Once good football players get a couple of three years into their careers and decide they want to go play somewhere else, Kentucky is the quintessential destination. Because two- or three-year veteran college football players don't care about Lamborghinis and photo shoots anymore. They want to know about nutrition, proper development, placement, scheme. They want to know how they're going to be used, how they're going to be developed, and that's where Kentucky and Mark Stoops can walk in and say, oh, oh, you, you care about the real stuff. You want meat and potatoes instead of ice cream and sprinkles. Here you go. So Ray Davis, what I'm trying to tell you, is not an anomaly. Those kind of guys showing up in Lexington, seemingly out of nowhere, not an anomaly. Also, they are very good, not just at development, but at evaluation, too. I told you in that piece, right in that clip right there, Ray Davis wasn't our number one rated player out of the portal. Far from it. He wasn't even top 10 at his position. How'd he look yesterday? Ask Florida. If they could re-rack the transfer portal rankings, ask Florida where they'd rank Ray Davis. Florida is now one in five on the road under Billy Napier. They had 10 penalties again yesterday. I say again because they had nine of them against Utah. Special teams are bad for Florida right now. And uh, 
All right, there's so, so you know what that means. That means a lot of people are going to call for Billy Napier's job. And then watch this show to see if I'm going to call for his job. Well, no, I'm not going to call for his job because I rarely ever do that to begin with, and it's not time to call for his job. It's, it's a pretty long ways away from that time. Now, what I didn't just say is I didn't just say I love everything I'm seeing about the Florida program, but there's this third option. Option one, love Napier. Carry water for him. Option two, fire Napier. End of sentence. Option three, don't support the firing of Billy Napier, but maybe support changes in special teams mechanisms. Maybe, maybe get an actual play-calling offensive coordinator down there. Those sorts of things I think will be on the table, and I think a healthy inventory of the program is something every coach does at the end of a year. I think Billy Napier will do it. I don't think it's the craziest thing to suggest he's still learning how ultimately to run Florida. Now, no one wants to think about that because everyone wants every coach to be a finished version of themselves, and that's not reality. And it's not reality at Florida either. I think he'll be okay. Billy Napier is a plenty good enough coach. If there are changes that need to be made, which I'm sure there are, they look like they need to be made to me, I trust him to make them. I, I just go back to Meemaw's old adage, and it always pops up this time of year because the same person praising the dude two weeks ago for beating Tennessee now wants him fired and will praise him again if they upset Georgia in a month. Meemaw said, do not react to this stuff at the speed of water. React at the speed of honey. And if you put a drop of each on a plate and turn the plate sideways, look how fast they move. Water just falls off the plate. It's like a ping pong ball, back and forth, back and forth. Honey, while it still moves, moves very slowly, very, very methodically. And that's how my opinion moves with the job security of a coach. So no, no. If you've tuned in tonight to hear me call for Billy Napier's job, I'm not doing that. And I'm not doing it just because I want to hide feelings. I'm not doing it because I don't feel that way. And it would be quite a while before I did. More takeaways here. Not from this game, but more takeaways across the country. Pardon me, second sip from the chalice necessary. Uh, good crowd live tonight. Appreciate you guys joining live. But you know what? I also appreciate if you're listening to the replay, driving through Laramie, Wyoming tomorrow morning. Thank you for that as well. Notre Dame beat Duke last night, and what a game this was. 21-14 is the final. When, when, when I'm sitting there watching that game, and I see 13-0, and I see Notre Dame get off to a, a pretty good start, they're pitching a shutout, I think that's it. And then, voila, I, Josh, goes crazy. I look, hey, turn on the Duke game, because I'm heading home last night. I'm driving home from Auburn, and all of a sudden, it's 14-13. We got a fight on our hands here. What a game this ended up being. Riley Leonard, the Duke quarterback, goes down at the very end. Uh, that looks like a high ankle sprain. I think Pete Thamel confirmed that. I think he did. So it's probably not a season ender, but he's probably going to miss multiple weeks. And uh, that, that concludes my medical expertise there. I got some ideas on what they're about to do to him, but I don't know. So let's talk about the here and now. Notre Dame won this game last night. It, it never was going to be easy. Uh, it... It was probably looked at by people who don't know anything about Duke as, well, this is a trap game. It's not a trap game. Everyone's attention was on the game. It's just hard. They're a hard team to beat. Duke, I, listen to this. Under Mike Elko, this is his second year there. At Duke, 
they still haven't lost a game by double digits. They've played an entire conference slate. They come into this year. They've already played Clemson and Notre Dame this year. They beat one of them. They nearly beat the other one. They hadn't lost a single game by double digits. I don't even have a job opening at Pate State, and I want Mike Elko to come over here. And I imagine some places with job openings will be calling him up pretty quickly. Ironically, Notre Dame gets this win. You better be pulling for Duke pretty hard now. You need that strength of schedule. You need that resume boost. Probably one of the parts of our sport I detest the most, but it is what it is. Michigan. Yes, friends, I thought Nebraska would cover yesterday. Yes, friends, it was a best bet. No, friends, it did not go our way. Michigan has allowed the following point totals, and this is freshly updated. Three points, seven points, six points, seven points, seven points. Their scores are just rinse, repeat, except they chose to score in the 40s yesterday. So they ramped it up a little bit once they got into conference play. No penalties, no turnovers. Their first road game, supposed to be a little bit bumpy. They, they just yawned, basically, took care of business. They were 10 of 16 on third down and fourth down. Nebraska ran 46 total plays. This was machine-like. This was destruction by Michigan. And it's a shame because those Nebraska kids' parents were there. They had to watch that. And I wonder about Michigan. I really do because I know these folks keep saying, well, yeah, but. Yeah, but what? Well, yeah, but they haven't played anyone. That's the point. They're not beating no one 30 to 20. They're, they're crushing teams. I almost used a stronger term there. I'm not RG3. I'm going to stick to just crushing teams. Um, they're doing exactly what an elite team would do, in other words, against inferior competition. And it's Michigan. You know their schedule. So the inferior competition is going to keep getting served up and keep getting served up. Nothing more to really say about that. But this was a pretty thorough beatdown. Bama went on the road and took care of business last night, 40-17 to against Mississippi State. And you know what I loved? I loved, as I watched this on the way home, responsibly, I loved that Nick Saban finally decided to do what a lot of people have been waiting on him to do, and that is portal back about five years and, and sort of channel the old school Nick Saban. See, the new school Nick Saban is a little more mellow. Folks behind the scenes will tell you that hasn't changed. But the front-facing version of Nick Saban, the Aflac commercial version of Nick Saban, the once-a-week-on-Pat-McAfee version of Nick Saban, little kinder, little sweeter, little more docile, little toned down, let's communicate with the players a little bit differently. And last night, he said, none of that. They started off a little slow, and Nick Saban went full stone-cold mode, and the team responded. And it was nice. It was nice to see the F-bombs fly again. Yes, it's a family-friendly show, but sidelines are not family-friendly. There are no children on those sidelines. I have stood next to Nick Saban and listened to how he used to talk to Lane Kiffin. That was not family-friendly. Saban, Saban pulled the trigger a little bit last night, and maybe that's, maybe that's him gauging that's what that team needs. Whatever he said, it worked. And they came alive. Uh, it, it was not as thorough a beatdown as Michigan put on Nebraska, certainly. But the offensive line continues to improve. You know, I have a, you know, I have a, a very checkered past with the Alabama offensive line already through six weeks this year. 
Defense will allow them to compete in and be favored in most every game they play. Their defense is playing really well. Gave up a little bit more on the ground than I expected last night. Interesting, but played very well. Now, I am going to suggest something to you. This team still has a number of tests remaining. Bama's toughest remaining game is this Saturday. They are going to Texas A&M. It will be a war. This will be the toughest game they play the rest of the year. Not the last losable game they play, but I'm talking about matchups. A&M is vulnerable through the air a little bit. Bama can't throw the ball. So this is, this is fist on fist. It is cannonball meeting cannonball. And you're playing in their building. And you know good and well what happened the last time you went down there. Everyone knows that this is the circle game for pretty much everyone who plays Alabama. You have no margin for error. You've already lost a game. Season's on the line for all intents and purposes. Bama at Texas A&M this Saturday. And I can't wait to watch that. Cannot wait to watch that. I just hyped the game up like I'm about to do the preview. No, that's on the Tuesday show. I'm just getting you ready, and I'm telling you, that that game right there will be, um, I don't know if it'll be game of the year. Maybe someone will win by 30, but it will be the biggest test remaining for Alabama, I think, because of the styles of the two teams. Texas just put Kansas away. I don't know, honestly, how much we take from this because Jalen Daniels did not play, and he was the sole reason that we even had attention paid on this game. Texas outgained Kansas 661 to 260. How nice is it, by the way, to have Bijan Robinson walk out the door? Roshan Johnson walks out the door at running back, and you just got Jonathan Brooks there, 20 carries, 217, two touchdowns. Kansas was 0 of 8 on third down. They were 0 of 2 on fourth down. Those are padlock stats. That's pretty tough. If you told me Texas looks like the best team in the country, I wouldn't argue with you. I've seen him in person once. I'll see him again this Saturday. I just don't know after last night that I add anything on to the cake. Like there's not another layer that we added for Texas because what was Kansas going to do? Like in the moment you know that their quarterback's out, that's out. You don't even put that game on a monitor. You just look at the box score at the end of the day. Oklahoma dissected Iowa State. And I, I don't know what to tell you from a, a heartbroken cyclone here. I don't know what to tell you. I, I'll tell you. Exactly what I'll tell you. How about that? I, I look at this score. Iowa State's got 20 on the board. There are eight minutes remaining until halftime. And I think to myself, number one, wow, points. Number two, they're in it to win it today. Iowa, forget about the 21. Forget about plus 21. Iowa State could threaten to win this game. 20. Remember that number. 20 on the board with eight minutes and change to go in the first half. I mentioned that number because that was the final score. They did not score another point. Oklahoma beat them 50 to 20. So imagine my shock when I checked back. It was actually a typo situation. I actually went to another website. I think I pulled up CBS, and I always trust our guys to have the right scores there. But when it said 50 to 20, I said, surely not. And I pulled up ESPN, and there it is, 50 to 20. And I have since confirmed it's not a typo. Oklahoma really did just shut them down. Iowa State, to the point where it was 21 to 20 in this game, Iowa State was averaging 8.4 yards per play. We were looking good, man. And then they had 93 total yards the rest of the way. Lights went out. Oklahoma defense showed up 2.8 yards per play. Uh, they, were, they were shut out the final 39 minutes of this game. 
So there's that. Uh, shaky defense early for Oklahoma. Rounded into form. Uh, Tom Green from Sooners Illustrated had a lot of good numbers. I was reading a lot of his work. I just quoted some of them. But um, this Saturday, Red River Shootout will be there. Hadn't seen Oklahoma in person yet this year. I have speculated, and I think I'm right on this, a lot of America hasn't seen Oklahoma yet this year. You will Saturday. Dot, dot, dot. You will Saturday. Also, I don't have much to say about this game except one thing. Penn State, the Fighting Jessies of Penn State won 41-13 to over Northwestern, which is noteworthy for two reasons. Number one, it was a real close game in the first half. That's why God makes you play four quarters. The other thing is Penn State was favored by 27.5 in this game. You'll notice they won by 28. It wasn't a run-out-the-clock situation, though, kids. They were up 21 with 2.20 remaining. And they uncork a uh, 30-yard strike to the end zone. We call that a backdoor cover. And as I have tried to tell you many times, I put the tweet out about a month ago, and I should have retweeted it yesterday. The two guys most aware of the spread on Penn State games are on your screen right now. I'm one of them, and James Franklin's the other one. That dude is an assassin with the backdoor cover. He knows exactly what he's doing, and you can call it whatever you want to, but if you, if you lay points with Penn State, you are never out of the game. I don't know how many times I have, I have had the other side in the past and think to myself, oh, they'll take knees here. Oh, they'll run out the clock here. Now, this was former me before I learned and knew better. I know it, it ain't ever over with Penn State because James Franklin knows what he's doing. You'll never convince me otherwise. And I salute it. I think it's admirable. Good teams win. Great teams cover. We know that. We know that on this show. They're watching us in Mason, Texas, Asheville, North Carolina, Tyrone, Pennsylvania. Thank you guys so much. Let me ask you a very important question tonight. Uh, we're, we're, we're here. It's October. So let me ask you a question. How many playoff contenders do you think exist in this sport? If you had to put your life on the line, most dangerous game style, if your life is on the line, and you're trying to whittle down the amount of teams that are capable of making the playoff, not winning a title, making the playoff, how, how big is your list? I think mine may be like a dozen to 15 teams deep right now. Remember, our life is on the line making this list. So if anything, we have to be lenient with the teams that we have on there. I think we're looking, at around, we're looking around the country right now. I think, first off, you're kind of waiting on Michigan. When you're talking about the national championship picture, everyone's talking right now about how it's wide open, a lot of parity, which is true and true. But you got Michigan out there that's ranked way high in every poll, and they're still rolling over teams. So the theory is as long as you have at least one elite team in the room, it doesn't matter how much competitive balance you have beneath them. Like it didn't matter that TCU won a bunch of close games last year. When they went up against Georgia, that was firing a BB gun at a freight train. 10 times out of 10, 100 times out of 100, it's going to result the same way. Well, with Michigan, if they really are the team they look to have been so far this year, it won't matter what anyone else does. However, there is a world where Michigan is not quite as dominant as they look. They just haven't been tested. That's a possibility. So if we find that out, then it's really game on. Because Bama's already lost. Clemson's lost a couple of times. LSU's lost a couple of times. Notre Dame's lost and barely got by 
Duke last night, that they've shown vulnerability. FSU barely beat Boston College. Ohio State's bled a couple of times this year already, albeit in wins, so they're still undefeated. Uh, USC doesn't have championship-caliber defense right now. Texas, Texas was right there with Wyoming in the fourth quarter of a game, and no one remembers that anymore, and I'm high on Texas. Washington beat Arizona's backup quarterback by seven last night. So what I'm trying to tell you is everyone's got warts right now. Oregon hasn't shown any, but most of you don't think Oregon can win a title. I do. You don't. So that's okay. We'll just shove them off to the side for a second. And Michigan hasn't shown an ounce of vulnerability yet. And a lot of you do think they can win a title, which I do as well. I think it would be smart at this point to just throw out the normal logic. Because the normal logic is you've got to be these things. They're these little compartments that history has taught us. You've got to be elite here. You've got to be this in quarterback rating. You've got to be top five in that category or this category because all past playoff teams, all past national champions have had these things in common. Throw that stuff out this year. Throw it out. This is an atypical year. It's an anomaly year. I don't know what it is about the last year of the 14 playoff. I'm telling you my strategy right now, I'm throwing that stuff out. So I don't care what the key indicators in the past have been. Those are guidelines. They're not rules right now, like that dude in Pirates of the Caribbean said. And what I mean is, if you told me, whittle down the list of potential playoff teams, Miami's on the list. Like North Carolina's on the list. Oregon and Oregon State are both on that list. Penn State's way up there on that list. Notre Dame's still on that list. There are teams that you wouldn't normally mention in this conversation, even if they're undefeated, that have to be mentioned in this conversation right now. We may not have an elite team out there, guys. We may not have one. And if we don't, that's a recipe for chaos. And before you start to disagree with me, feel free to do it. But just remind yourself, September fools a lot of folks. And October and November can make fools out of a lot of folks who got convinced of things in September. I'm not saying Michigan's vulnerable. They may go on to be 15-0 national champs. I'm just telling you there's no way to know that right now. That's all I'm telling you. And I'm also telling you to remember, this says October 1st, not November 1st. You got a long way to go. You got a bunch of injuries. Unfortunately, it's a reality that are going to happen. All of them are going to be unexpected. You're going to have weird turnover games. You're going to have weird bounces of the ball. You're going to have college football happen. In other words, folks are still going to lose. There are a lot of losses coming. A lot of losses coming. Maybe folks you don't, you don't expect to lose games. I think that October, starting this Saturday, is going to be equal to any October we've ever seen in the sport. That's what I think. Because even the ones you think you know, you may not really know. Let's get some best bets and let's get out of here. I have got two of them. I've already put these in myself. I am strongly encouraging you to move on these as well. You know what? Do whatever you want to do. Live your life. But I'm just telling you, we're on two games to start the uh, Ramen Noodle Express this week. And I also want to remind you, there was uh, someone out there slandering me earlier today. And as Meemaw said, 10 times out of 10, the folks who talk the most know the least. I give you best bets on this show. I do not finalize our full list until Friday night. The reason is because we wait on line moves a lot of times. So, on Friday Night Lines, which is Friday night, live on Instagram, and only Instagram, at Josh, I give out final, final best bets. 
Then and only then is the list complete. So I got some fool trashing me today. I'm trying to. Trash is as trash does. Tara, true blood. I got some fool trying to come at me today saying, you went two and six this week. How'd I go two and six when we bet 12 games? No, we did not go two and six, friend. And he screenshot, or past tense, screenshot, uh, what Colin just showed you, which is our fancy little graphic we have on the air. That is incomplete. It's not complete by Thursday. So you don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, now that I've reminded our diehards what they already know, we're taking Louisville plus seven to start this week. They're playing Notre Dame, back-to-back road for Notre Dame. They've been emotionally exhausted two weeks in a row, and now they're going into Louisville. Louisville's undefeated. I don't care about that because they're, as Colin said earlier tonight, they're a soft undefeated. I care that the situationals do not favor Notre Dame this week. So Louisville plus seven, and I'm taking Texas Tech plus one. How in the world did Baylor beat UCF yesterday? I have no clue. But I know that they expended a lot of energy doing that. They got Texas Tech this week. Joey McGuire and company badly need a conference win. I think they'll get it. We're taking Red Raiders plus one. We're taking Louisville plus seven. Thank you guys so much for watching the show. If you haven't already on your way out the door, thumbs up. Click the like button and subscribe to the channel and subscribe to the podcast if you're listening there or be a real friend of the program and do both. Great week in Auburn. Looking forward to a great week which will lead up to us descending on the State Fair at Texas, Oklahoma this Saturday. Can't wait. For Director Colin, for Producer Jesse, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great start to your week. Take care and God bless.